Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio. I'm excited to be talking about relationships today with Terry Reel. He's the best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression, The Straight Talking, How Can I Get Through to You, Reconnecting Men and Women, and most recently, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Make Love Work. Terry founded the Relational Life Institute, offering workshops for couples, individuals, and parents, as well as a professional training program for clinicians. His work with its rigorous common sense approach speaks to both men and women. A proponent of full throttle marriage, Terry has been called the most invocative voice in thinking about and treating men and their relationships in the world today. Terry, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a joy to be here. I appreciate it. I've been very excited about it. I could use a little relationship tips myself. So uh, let's start out a little bit about your background. Just tell us a little bit of how you got into the relationship business and, and you were a therapist. What, how did it evolve into focusing specifically on relationships? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, story, at least to me anyway. I uh, wrote that book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, uh, and it was the first book that had ever been written about male depression. Uh, before that book, depression was seen as a woman's disease, just like alcoholism in times past had been seen as a man's disease. So I'm proud of that. And there are an estimated 6 million depressed men in America at any given point. So the book did pretty well. And I began getting calls from Topeka and L.A. and wherever. Uh, is there somebody who uh, does the sort of work that you describe in the book in my area? And uh, for a while, I would refer them to whoever I could. But after I don't know, almost two years, the light went on. And I said, look, if you're crazy enough and you have the resources and you're desperate enough, come to Boston, which is where I live and spend some time with me and we'll sort this out. And what emerged was a two-day, I began to call it relational intervention. I'd spend two days with the couple. At the end of our two days, you were either back on track or getting a divorce. This was the last stop. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a couple of things. One is uh, I was pretty successful. I'd say 19 out of 20 couples made it. Uh, I'm not saying I fix them, they'd all go back home with an elaborate treatment program. You go to 12-step, you get medication, you do this, you do that. What I am saying, though, is that I saved them from the, I walked them off the ledge and they were saved from divorce. The other thing I noticed was that I broke just about every rule I had ever learned in couples therapy school. And being a writer and a teacher of family therapy, rather than eat myself alive with self-doubt, I went the other way and I began to say, well, what is working here? 
And it was really out of that, that the method that I call relational life therapy or relational living uh, emerged. And then I wrote the new rules of marriage and I started teaching this to therapists around the country. And just recently, I'm going to be opening up a class for the general public, an online course for the general public called Staying in Love. Staying the, uh, in Love. Staying in Love, love the, <laughs> the Art of Fierce Intimacy. Mm. Stay in Love, you got to be fierce. Uh, that's how it happened. I created a new way of working with couples. And uh, I've been teaching it for, gosh, 15, 20 years now. Wow. And you and Thomas Hubel are going to do be doing something online very soon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I love Thomas. And we've taught together in a number of venues. And last year we did an online course called Evolutionary Relationships. And it was so beautiful, particularly the people who would come on and do live work with us. And Thomas and I would tag team. Uh, and we did really deep work with some of the people. Uh, we thought maybe let's do it again. And this time we'll do some lecturing and talking, but we really want the heart and soul of it to be the live work of people actually working on having better relationships with themselves and with the people they love. So we uh, were opening up this class. The class is about trauma. It's about how trauma interferes with relationships. And it's also about how learning to be skilled in your relationship can heal your trauma. It goes both ways. Using your relationship to heal your own wounds and also with an understanding of what those wounds will do to impact your relationship if you're not uh, on top of it. I love that. So often I say about relationships, that we always find someone whose neuroses perfectly matches ours so we can do our work. <laughs> yeah. I, my version of that, Michael, is I say, uh, we all marry our unfinished business. Yeah, we it's so true. Business. Yeah. And, and that's the great healing opportunity of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But it, it works differently than we think it does. You see, what we want in relationships is the divine. We really, if we're honest, we really want a god or goddess who's going to be perfect and do it for us perfectly. And what we get is an all too human, woefully limited person. I, I talk to the couples I work with about, I'll say to a woman, well, this is called working with the man you have instead of the one you deserve. <laughs> but if you're going to work with this man, you better do this. Anyway, we long for the divine, but it is actually the uh, collision of your imperfections and mine and how we manage that collision. That's the actual stuff and guts of intimacy. This mm -hmm. is like the, the couple's character. Like how do they digest each other's imperfections and how do they work the relationship? How do you make things better in your relationship? Most of the couples that I come to see me and I see couples on the brink are all missing what I call a mechanism of correction, repair. It's like no steering wheel. Look, don't scratch me here, scratch me there. It works better. Don't tell me what to do. And it doesn't work. If you don't have a mechanism to assert your voice in the relationship in a way that can be heard and adjusted to, you're, you're in trouble, whether the trouble is now or 10 years from now, mm. there's going to be a bill that comes due. All relationships 
are about harmony, disharmony, and repair. Closeness, disruption, return to closeness. It's that move from disruption into repair, which is where all the skills come in. But it's that move from this uh, disillusionment to repair, which is when we tend to get triggered. And our old stuff takes over and skills go out the window and we never get to repair. That's uh, a lot of what Thomas and I are going to be talking about. What happens when you get triggered and what to do about it. Beautiful. Yeah, so much there. It seems that when often we start a relationship is where the real issue is that we have this expectation that this other person is going to fulfill my needs, that, that we're going to be happily ever after. And now I'm going to be happy because I've met my soulmate. Yeah. Talk about that, that impetus for getting into relationship. Well, that's that early uh, harmony phase, the in love phase. I, I speak about harmony, disharmony and repair. At the micro level, you can go through it 30 times during one dinner conversation, but it's also at the macro level. So at the, the biggest level, mm-hmm. I talk about three phases of relationship. Harmony phase, I speak of as love without knowledge. This is my soulmate. I've never met anybody who, this is, and I do believe there's that deep soul recognition, but you don't know about the state of their closet floor do you? And you don't know about their bills and you don't know about how they are with friends. Sooner or later, and certainly with the advent of children, you move from that, oh God, we're the best thing since sliced bread to, I'm sorry, do I know you? Have you ever, have we ever spoken before? This is, you know, James Framo, the father of couples therapy back in the forties and fifties once wrote, the day you turn to the person in bed with you, And you say to yourself, this is a dreadful mistake. I've been had. This is not the person I fell in love with. That day, says Framo, is the first day of your real marriage. Mm. That's disillusionment. Mm. Repair, and I call that phase knowledge without love. Now Mm. I see all your warts and moles, but I'm not very happy about them. The third phase is mature love, and I call it knowing love repair. Mm. And that's where I know all about your limitations. I live with you. But son of a gun, uh, you know, as woefully lacking as you may be, you're mine. Come on in. Let me pour you a cup of tea. I love you. That's Mm. mature love. And uh, our culture worships the harmony phase. Our culture doesn't even acknowledge the disillusionment phase or tell people what to do about it. We're on our own. You know, a great relationship is one where there's never any conflict and there's never any distance and everybody's just perfect with each other. I I like to say, you know, you go to a party, right? And somebody says, oh, there's Shirley and Steve. They've been together for 53 years and they've never fight and they love each other and they have better sex now than they did when they were 17. Just once I like to go to a party and I like to say, Hey, there's Sally and Steve. You know, she left them for a couple of years in the middle of their marriage. He had an affair. 
uh, they fight like cats and dogs, but they're getting better. They've been in about 15 years of on and off therapy, and they're learning to accept each other. Aren't they adorable? Just once I'd like to hear something like that, but we're not real with each other that way. It's all harmony, harmony, harmony. And that cuts the legs out from under our skills of repair. This culture does not teach us how to move from disillusionment into repair. It doesn't acknowledge that that movement exists to begin with. This thing about knowing your partner that you, you said, you know, there's that stage and then we know all the flaws and we know this. But one of the things I discover is particularly after my child was born in my relationship that I quit discovering the person newly that I, I knew her or I thought I knew her in a way that didn't allow for, for discovering somebody that was beyond the boundaries of what I thought I knew. Yeah. Thomas talks about that a lot. Talks about when you're in a relationship and you're seeing each other in 2d two dimensions. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's her. I know all about her. And then you wake up just for a moment, you know, you're on the beach and you watch her silhouetted against the waves and the sunlight. And you say to yourself, gosh, who is this person? And they're new to you because you have discovered that part in you that can receive the newness. They haven't changed. You've changed. Your consciousness has changed. Somebody told me that they had heard from you about the hoax of personal growth. I thought that was titillating. I wanted to hear more. I'm writing a whole book about it. Uh, I'm writing a book that's not going to come out for a a year next March. Uh, The title of the book is called Us, How Moving Relationships Beyond Me and You Creates Love, Passion, and Understanding. Mm. And I speak about our culture as being toxic individualism. We are such an individualistic culture, particularly here in America. The individual is a myth. I go into this in my in my book. We, neurologically, we are not freestanding human beings. Neurologically, we, we don't have one closed nervous system. You and I are regulating each other's nervous systems right now as we speak. We are not freestanding. We're taking in and it's impacting us all day long. Individual empowerment has been the thing for the last 40 years whether it's feminism or 12-step or uh, psychotherapy, it's personal or personal growth. Personal growth is personal growth, not relational growth. Mm -hmm. And they have a different ideal of strength. Personal growth, I summarize as I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself. I found my voice and I'm going to speak any goddamn way I want and you just better listen Relational growth is, I was weak, now I'm strong, I'm bringing my full strength into this relationship with you. I'm standing toe to toe with you. That's fierce intimacy. I'm fierce and I'm loving. I love you. This is what I want. Tell me what you want. Let's horse trade. Let's get this done together. We're a team. But you can do that only if you remember the us, only if you remember You know, when I say, I talk about individualistic thinking versus ecological thinking. Mm -hmm. 
And in individualistic thinking, patriarchal thinking, you are apart from nature and you're above nature. You dominate nature, whether you're dominating your wife or your kids or your body or your thinking, whatever you think you're supposed to be controlling, you're in control. When you wake up to ecological consciousness, you realize that you're not above the system, you're in the system. The system surrounds you and sustains you. I, I like to say your relationship is like your biosphere. It's what you bring. You can choose to pollute your biosphere over here with a lot of anger, but you're going to breathe in that pollution over there in your partner's withdrawal or upset. You're connected. You're not apart. And once you wake up to the wisdom of that humility, then things change. It's not, I win, you lose. It's not which one of us is true. All those things are irrelevant. What becomes relevant is how are we as a team going to make this work for both of us? And it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it really is. It reminds me a little bit of, I've had a lot of clients over the years that say, I've just outgrown him or I've just outgrown her. And the idea of relationship as a practice and us rather than I've outgrown this other person. Talk about that phenomena and how that yeah. works in your system there. Yeah, no, exactly. You're exactly right on it. It's like the difference between saying, I need more sex. I want more sex in this relationship, which, you know, okay. Or saying, we deserve to have a good sex life and we're not having it. What do we need to do to restart this thing and make this work for both of us? That's the I versus the, the us, the we. Mm -hmm. And once you start thinking like a team, once you start thinking ecologically instead of linearly, everything changes. Like, for example, the relational answer to the question who's right and who's wrong is who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter what matters is how are we going to make this work for the two of us you know in the old way it's never a zero-sum game in which one wins and the other loses if one of you loses in a relationship you both lose mm -hmm. and that's not some pie in the sky idealism you both lose because of the real politic that the loser will make the winner pay for it count on it whether mm -hmm. it's overt or passive aggressive there will be payback i don't want to steamroller my way and bully you because there will be repercussions for me I, the two of us are connected to a seesaw if i go up you go down if you go up i go down there's nothing that i do in this relationship that won't blow back in my face that's being wise that's being humble that's being a part of it rather than above it. Yeah. Terry, talk a little bit about some of the ways that we miss each other, that we just, you know, ships in the night kind of thing. Well, you know, we talk a lot about the gift of presence. Mm -hmm. One of the great gifts you can bring your partner is the gift of presence. Uh, but in order to be present, uh, you have to be in the presence. And uh, what happens in relationships as I marry my unfinished business is you trigger me. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? That means that you wound me in some version of the ways in which I was wounded as a child. 
And I, all my defenses and all the ways I adapted to that wounding come up and land on you now in the present. I speak about what I call the wise adult part of us, prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. the wounded child part of us, very young on the receiving end of the trauma. And between those two, the adaptive child part of us, the part of you that adapted to what was ever going on. So I have a saying, show me the thumbprint and I'll tell you about the thumb. Let, let me, can I tell you a story to illustrate yeah, please. how we miss each other? We miss each other because we get triggered and we stop being in the present with one another. Mm -hmm. So uh, Steve comes to me, he's dragged into me uh, by his wife and uh, they're on last legs and uh, Steve is a liar. And uh, he lies about everything. His wife says, if you ask him what kind of shoes he's wearing, he'll say they're not shoes, they're sneakers, just to like lie. Okay, and she's ready to divorce him. Now, once I have the relational stance that somebody, the dysfunctional move that they make over and over and over again, angry pursuit or, um, uh, or masochistic caretaking or depressive withdrawal, whatever they do over and over and over again, my next uh, question is going to be, where do they learn it? Mm -hmm. Take it back to childhood. So this guy, Steve, is a champion liar. So what do I say to him? Show me the thumbprint. I'll tell you about the thumb. Who tried to control you? And he says, my dad, his dad was a military man all over him. The way he stood, the way he held his shoulders, how he ate food at dinner, I mean, all over him. And I said, what did you do? And he looked at me and he got this great smile on his face. And he said, I lied. <laughs> I gave unto dad what was dad's. I was a really good boy up front. And then in the back, I would take care of myself and have freedom in a good time. But Lord knows I would never tell him that. I have a saying, always respect the exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. Mm -hmm. Steve, you did exactly what you needed to do. Smart boy to preserve your autonomy and preserve yourself from that intrusive father. Congratulations is just the thing. Only here's the thing. I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not that little boy. She's not your father. You don't have to lie to her. They came back two weeks later, all smiles. True story. And I said, okay, what happened? They said, we got it. I said, okay, what happened? He went to the store over the weekend with a list of, say, seven things. And true to form, he came back with six out of the seven. Wife says, where's the, I don't know, sugar? He says, every muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to say they were out of it. <laughs> and on this moment, I took a breath. I remembered all we were talking about. I looked at my wife and I said, I forgot it. And she burst into tears, true story, and said, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. So the reason why we miss each other is because we're missing ourselves. We're out of that wise adult part of us. We're triggered. We're back in the past. And we're talking to mom or dad or some other figure. 
and we're that little boy or that little girl, and we're using the strategies that that little boy and girl use to preserve themselves and stay alive. But times have changed and it's time to change the music. Mm-hmm. I'm really touched by that because you described my father, the colonel, <laughs> and my upbringing also. <laughs> and here you are broadcasting to the world. That's right. That's right. I don't have any secrets anymore. I'm on air too long. Talk about this thing you call second consciousness. Yeah. Second consciousness is what happened to the man in the story when every muscle and nerve in his body was screaming to the same old, same old, that's first consciousness, your knee-jerk response, Mm -hmm. your adaptive child response. And in this moment, he took a breath and he literally reached for a different part of him, a different part of his soul, a wiser part of him that said, you know what? We don't need to do this. I said, today I choose door B. I've been through door A a million times. Today, I'm going to try something different, something learned, something cultivated, something more mature. And uh, it doesn't always work, but it's your best shot at what works. So that's second consciousness. And I talk about relational mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which is literally a mindfulness practice. It's an attentional practice. When you're in that knee-jerk response, take a breath, Take a walk around the block. Take a time out if you need it. Splash some water on your face. Have a little chat with your inner child. Get yourself centered back in your adult self. And then come back into the fray. But the first order of business is getting you back into that wise adult prefrontal cortex part of you. If you try and solve anything from the adaptive child, it won't work. Can I tell you why? Tell me why. Because that part of you doesn't want to solve anything. That's right. <laughs> that another, part- an, another aspect of that that I really like from studying with Thomas for, for a while is, um, you know, I really, I really got when I started working with Thomas that nothing's broken and nothing needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And these adaptive strategies are the product of a wise, intelligent nervous system that protected you at that time. And it hasn't been safe enough to release that, what he calls frozen past in the body. Talk a little bit about that, because I think so often people come to couples or individual therapy because they want to get fixed or they want a pill or they want something, you know, not a practice. They want to get, okay, fix this. I got, I'm broken and fix this. Well, yeah, I I love what you just said, quoting Thomas. It's not that you're broken or diseased. It's that you adapted a strategy in circumstances in which you were either intruded upon by a parent or you were abandoned emotionally by a parent or both uh, oscillations between the two or one parent did one thing, the other one did, but you're not in the healing holding environment of healthy parenting in that area or that period or whatever it is. In the absence of that, you figure out what the hell to do with yourself and you cobble together a version of what an adult looks like that's really a child's version of an adult. Mm-hmm. The adaptive child tends to be black and white, harsh, 
certain, unforgiving, perfectionistic. You get the flavor. Mm -hmm. One of my patients said uh, the adaptive child part of him was like a little fundamentalist that lived inside. (laughs) That's right. That's wrong. That's good. That's bad. And uh, most of the people that I see in my office have lived most of their lives out of their adaptive children, thinking that that's a wise adult, but it's not. And the mores of the culture at large are the same mores of that adaptive child, Mm -hmm. individualistic, non-relational. So a lot of people live in their adaptive child, make great successes of themselves in the world, but make a hash of their personal relationships, including their relationship to themselves. Uh, Our job is to understand that part of you, love that part of you, surround that part of you and demote that part of you, Mm. you in the back seat. I say to people, when an inner child kicks up, I want you to put them on your lap, put your arms around them, love them up and take their sticky hands off the steering wheel. They're not driving the bus. You are. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Talk about relational recovery and living relationally. I know you don't mean it, but when you say a relational recovery, it's like, okay, that's done. And it's never done, is it? No. No. Mm -hmm. What I mean by relational recovery is that you recover that state of authentic connection to yourself and others that we're born for, Mm -hmm. that we're designed for. And it's the only thing that's going to make us happy. And no, do you recover like Tuesday? It's not like Satori. It's not like Tuesday at three o'clock, you know, you get up from the tree and you're, you're relational, uh, but you're more relational than you were before you sat down in the tree. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. Again, thinking of Thomas, that idea that uh, of the wave and the particle that when I'm with you, I, instead of seeing you as an object out there, you're actually showing up as a wave in here. And that, so that would indicate then that the boundaries of my own identity are shaping my ability to actually know who you are. Well, that's right. And that's what the cognitive uh, scientists tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we think of as ourself and what we think of, what I think of as Michael is in actuality, a set of images that are in my brain. I don't see you. I see the Michael that's in my brain that gets triggered when I see you. It's like, oh yeah, I have a category called Michael and this guy fits that category. That's how we, that's how we operate in the world. And and that of course is where the spiritual work is. All forms of spiritual work, I believe have in common uh, at least this one thing, if not more, which is it's not about your thinking about it's about your being with mm-hmm. you know i i sat zen with a zen master for about 10 years i would meet him once a week and we would talk for 15 minutes and then just meditate for 45 minutes that was the session and uh, i i would say to him i'd come to him for my 15 minutes and i would come with all my issues you know oh this person did that from a zen perspective how shall i think about that and he would say If I were you, I would try to be intimate with those feelings. Okay, great. From a Zen perspective, what would you say? I would say, 
just really be that and let that permeate you. And the son of a gun, every time I said anything, all he would say to me is immediately experience whatever you're talking about and get out of the way of that immediate experience. It was the same damn thing Beautiful. at the time. Yeah. Mm. Be here with. This thing about connection, you know, you talk about that we were born to be connected. And, and a lot of times it seems like we can only find ourselves in the connection with the other. I love the Buddhist term interdependent co-arising. I've always loved that. I mean, it just says volumes, that whole idea of we're expanding together. I thought of a short poem, Hmm. very short poem. I can't remember. I think it's Wang Po. I can't remember his name, but he says, why are you unhappy? Why are you unhappy? He says, because 99.9% of everything you do and say is about yourself. And there isn't one. There isn't one. (laughs) And there isn't one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I would like to get that quote. Let me me just say my uh, pal and colleague, Carol Gilligan, who says, there's no relationship without voice and there's no voice without relationship. Hmm. Dan Siegel, the neurobiologist, talks about we that larger whole that's not quite you and not quite us, but more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. But I wanted to look at the ancestral impact because we often stop at childhood, but we've got hundreds of thousands of years of evolution behind us. In the West, we don't particularly have, I mean, I thought I was an immaculate conception myself, (laughs) uh, but that role was already taken. So, you know, but this idea that, we forget that there, there's so much behind us, this, this entire force for hundreds of thousands of years. Talk about how that impacts beyond the familial and the cultural, how that can impact our relationships. What we know now in science, in the field that's called epigenetics, that trauma in one generation literally physically alters the DNA of the next generation. Mm-hmm. This stuff is carried generation after generation. We are all the sum of our ancestors. Yeah. And the work that we do is not just for our generation. I have a, a, a quote. It, it, it's the height of presumption to quote yourself, but I will. <laughs> anyway, this is from I Don't Want to Talk About It. It starts with family. Family pathology rolls like a fire in the woods taking down everything in its path, generation after generation, until one person has the courage to turn and face the flames. Mm -hmm. That person brings peace to his ancestors and spares the children that follow. Mm -hmm. This is not about us. This is a multi-generational legacy that we have it in our hands to transform by doing our own personal work. We're in a flow. It's not just about what's here and now. The spark that passed, the violent spark that passed between me and my father, passed between him and his father. And who knows about my great-grandfather? And who knows? I do know they went through the Depression together. I do know that my uh, grandfather got so depressed in the middle of the Depression that he tried to kill himself and his two children, meaning my father and his brother, that stuff is lodged in my body. 
and beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond. Look at look at race in America. I mean, there is a, a bleeding, festering wound that started in 1649. It is as alive in us as uh, anything uh, in the world, anything that can be. It, all of that matters and all of that impacts us. We are not freestanding individuals. We're the sum of this whole trajectory. And beyond that, evolution itself moving beyond culture and beyond trauma, just the force of evolution. I uh, studied uh, uh, for uh, quite a while with H.H. Um, Amos, mm -hmm. Muhammad uh, Ali, Diamond Heart. And one of his ideas I loved was what he called the optimizing principle. The universe is evolving. It is perfecting itself. Someday, who knows where or when, the whole world is going to perfect itself. Enlightenment will be irrelevant because we'll all be enlightened. Mm -hmm. But you can feel it. If you're, if you're spiritually attuned, you can feel the buoyancy. You can feel the dynamism working through you when you're in the flow. With, when I'm in the flow with a client or if I'm in the flow when I'm writing, it's not me. Mm -hmm. It's me plus and that plus is uh, something that I love getting close to. Whatever you want to call that, that's my go-to right there. Yeah, I love that. I love Almas's work. I want to go back to something you, you were talking about before. I came from the corporate world. You know, 30 years of my life was in the corporate world. I always used to say I work with heads on sticks that they just have <laughs> bodies to carry their head to the next meeting. And But that disembodiment in our culture. And when we're talking about relationships, how can we be related when we're hardly in our body, most of us? Well, there's a lot of good work going on right now in psychotherapy, this body-centered for the first right. time historically since psychotherapy was created. So I'm very happy about that. But, you know, it, all of us who follow a spiritual discipline speak about embodied knowledge. You know, it's one thing to um, it's one thing to know it up here. It's another thing to know it in yourselves. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of knowing that comes from direct perception. I've always said I understand mystics and I understand atheists. I don't understand religion particularly because it's like prove it to me. Okay, if you're a mystic here, I'll prove it to you. Here, watch this, feel this, know this. I know that spirit exists because I know it and it's irreducible. That kind of knowing is embodied and that can be cultivated. I had an image when you were talking about Steve and the, the milk or the sugar or whatever it was and how he had, he, you, I could feel when you were talking about it, the dropping into the body, go, I, ah, <laughs> you know, and then saying, I lied because it is, it's a bodily experience. It's very visceral. Yeah. And, I, and I also speak about what I call whoosh, that first consciousness, that automatic response. It comes up from the feet like a wave through the body. It's very physical. It's very convincing. Fight, flight, or fix. You're one of those three. And when that whoosh comes, man, your body is saying, you better do this or the world is going to fall apart. You know, Krishnamurti once said that True liberation is freedom from one's own one one own automatic responses. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where my work and Thomas's work combine. I'm talking about primarily freedom from the automatic responses that come out of your psychology. Thomas is speaking uh, more deeply about spirit. But I think we're talking about very much the same thing, whether it's relational mindfulness or contemplative practice. It's about moving beyond that automatic visceral response and taking a breath and letting your body come to its senses. I like that phrase, come to your come to its sense, come yeah. to your senses. There's nothing wrong. Let me say that again. 99 out of 100 times when I'm sitting with a couple, there's nothing wrong. There's a lot of fuss around trying to get happy with one another as if there were something wrong. But when the two people can clear all that and just gaze at each other, just be with each other. I talk about remembering love. In the heat of the moment, remembering that the person you're speaking to is not the enemy. There's someone you love. And if you can't remember that, remember you have to live with the son of a gun. But you're in it with them. You're not imposing it on them. Viktor Frankl had a great quote in Man's Search for Meeting. And he said that, between the stimulus and the response is that space of choice. But to get that space, we need practices like meditation or whatever. Maybe talk a little bit about some practices that people can use to expand that gap between the triggering, the stimulus and the response. So we move from reaction to response. Yes. Well, some of us may need to do some focused trauma work. Mm -hmm. in order to get there because our uh, injuries are such and our adaptions are so powerful because of the power of the injury that it's all pretty much on automatic and it's, it's hard to get that wise adult self on board at all. A lot of the couples that I work with, I have to, for all the couples I work with, I'm pulling for that wise adult part of you. Mm -hmm. But in many of the couples, I'm creating it with you. There, there isn't any on board at all, or very little. It's very deep. It's always in all of us, but it's hard. So you remember, the, the I call this the er skill, the proto skill, because it's only the wise adult part of us that wants to be intimate. It's only the wise adult part of us that will use any relational skills. The adaptive child part of us, no. The adaptive child part of us is about being right or control or ventilating or retaliating or withdrawal. Those are the five losing strategies of the adaptive child. And the art is that space. It's so funny. I, I love that quote. Before Macbeth kills the king, he talks to the stars and he says, let not my let not my hand, let not my eye see what my hand does. Let us outrun, I love the phrase, let us outrun that pauser reason. Let us outrun that pauser. Well, we don't want to outrun that pauser. We want to strengthen that pauser. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. And whether it's sitting on your pillow or whether it's taking a breath when your partner is losing their, you know, cookies, it is the same moment of coming to yourself, mm. being pulled out of yourself and then coming back into center. And 
I do think that a contemplative practice can be very helpful with relational mindfulness. When I'm with my wife or a kid and I get triggered and I feel that whoosh and rather than having it come right out of my mouth, I take a breath and I bring myself back down and I bring myself back into centeredness. That's something that I'm doing with my kid in the moment. I'm doing it better because of all the hours I put on the pillow. It's really the same muscle in me that's being used in both places. So let's talk about the pillow because I teach meditation and it's really important. And part of what I've learned, particularly since I started studying with Thomas, is that it's about capacity. It's about our interiority and creating capacity. And one of the challenges that people often have in doing a meditation practice is First, they'll sit and it'll be all, you know, ponies and rainbows and, and very nice, you know, and, and then we'll spend a little more time and all of a sudden it's wild horses and monsters coming up and we're fidgeting and energy's starting to go all crazy. And they go, I just can't meditate. I was fine before, but I can't do it without realizing that it's actually, no, you made space for those traumas and those other things to come up now because it was safe to be with those and that what's being called for is to be with them talk about your sense of that as to stay in the practice to allow ourselves to know that no this is coming up because it's safe to come up well that's exactly the same whether it's what's coming up inside your brain during a meditation or what's coming up as you watch your partner burst into tears or get mad. It's the same being with without running from it or controlling it. It's that same radical acceptance uh, that Tara Brock talks about. Mm -hmm. You have to, to be willing to keep company with whatever comes up inside you and with whatever your partner is going through. That's the best thing that you can be is good company. Yeah. And we're often not good company to either the people outside in our lives or in our own lives. I spent decades with incredible negative self-talk. It's all gone. It's gone because uh, I've engaged in some practices that uh, tamed it. When I start to give myself a hard time, I know that that's the adaptive child part of me. It's not something I have to fight. It's not something I have to hate but it's something I have to kind of put in its place. I was giving a talk for a bunch of therapists and it was the end of the day and I was signing books that I'd written and somebody says, oh my God, Terry, you're going to list your plane, blah, blah, blah. And I gather up all my things and I get on my plane and I'm running. I just get there in time. I'm sitting on the plane with my shoes off and a glass of wine and I'm feeling great. And I feel this cold, wet splotch on my chest. And I looked down and my shirt is a black puddle. I had taken the Sharpie that I was signing the books with and put it in the shirt without a cap. And this was an expensive shirt too. This was like a going on TV shirt. I have ADD and I'm always breaking things and losing things and whatever. I want to tell you, Michael, that adaptive child part of me started to go off on me about that shirt. And in another age, it could have gone on for five or six, it could have triggered a depression that would have gone on for a week. I can't believe it. 
you can't take care of anything. You're always screwing up. Here you are. You're screwing all the. So I leaned into it, not harshly. You don't meet harshness with harshness. You meet harshness with loving firmness. And I said to this little part of me, I said, hey, listen, pal. The same ADD brain that ruined the shirt is the brain that wrote the books that were being autographed. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we both give each other a little bit of a break here? That's great. I love that. I love that. Well, this good company thing, I'm glad you brought that up because what about guilt, shame, self-criticism? Talk about the motivators of unhealthy self-esteem and how we can access greater ability to just like what you did. Oh, you're the guy that wrote the book too. That's right. So you know what? If your listeners get only this one thing that I'm about to say from this talk, it will be well spent. And this one thing has the power to change lives. You ready? Mm -hmm. There is no redeeming value in harshness. There is nothing that harshness does that loving firmness doesn't do better. Mm. And that means if you're harsh to somebody else, it means if they're being harsh to you, and it absolutely means if you're being harsh to yourself. You know, I'm, a, I'm an old guy now, I'm 70. And at 70 years old, I have a deal with the universe, truly. And the deal is this, if it's not kind, I'm not interested. Let me say it again. If it's not kind, I'm not interested. So I will say to the part of me that's giving me grief, hey, listen, you may have a good point in something to teach me, but say it respectfully and I'll listen. And I do that inside my brain in exactly the same way I would do it if it was somebody outside of me. We can change these things. Our relationship to relationships in this culture is passive. You get what you get and then you complain about it. Both Thomas and I are talking about empowering you to be proactive up front in how you treat yourself, how you treat others, how you allow yourself to be treated by others. You have something to say about this. Mm. Another thing that you said that I found really intriguing and it, it just landed in me so simple, but it was women lose the voice and men lose the heart. Talk yeah. about that idea and, and how that informs the work you do with couples. Well, I'm very conscious of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I'm conscious of individualism. I'm conscious of racism. I'm conscious of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And uh, patriarchy is the water we all swim in. We're the fish and it's, we're made of it. Uh, there's no escaping it. And what patriarchy uh, teaches men and women traditionally is that men, in order to be a man, uh, you need to be invulnerable. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more unmanly you are. That's the traditional setup. Mm -hmm. And so men have stoic, closed hearts. Uh, we're supposed to. You know, research tells us that by uh, the age of four and five years old, boys stop uh, uh, demonstrating, articulating soft emotions. They still have them, but they know better than to express them. They've already learned the code. 
And the code for girls and women is uh, to this day, asserting yourself as selfish. A good woman serves the needs of others. You don't have the right to your own voice. And you put these two together and you got a mess. Now women have changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, women now want more emotional intimacy from men. Unfortunately, most men have not been raised to be all that emotionally intimate. And that's where I come in. That's where we teachers and therapists and uh, leaders like uh, Thomas can teach men how to move beyond those traditional scripts and be vulnerable and open your heart and care about your partner's vulnerability as well. That's all new territory. Moving men and women into intimacy is synonymous with moving them beyond patriarchy. Patriarchy mm -hmm. wasn't built for intimacy. This is a That's historic a <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Say it again, Terry. It's just too good. <laughs> moving men and women and non-binary people as well, I should mention. Moving men and women into increased intimacy is moving them beyond patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Women have to have loving, firm voice, and men have to have open, responsive hearts. And traditional patriarchy takes aim at both of those things. Mm. That's beautiful. Another thing I think that's a real issue for people is boundaries, particularly for women, is being able to say no, to stop. And, and um, so many people have weak boundaries, particularly women, as I said. But what are your thoughts about that whole issue of self-esteem and boundaries? Well, boundaries are really important in, in, in the work that I do, which I've inherited from one of my great mentors, Pia Melody, P-I-A-M-E-L-L-O-D-Y, a, -L -L -Y, a terrific uh, recovery pioneer. A lot of uh, therapists don't know her. But at any rate, boundaries are distinct from either, uh, boundaries can be too much or too little. So too little boundary means you're too open, you're too porous, you're too thin-skinned. Mm -hmm. And people who are boundaryless tend to be highly reactive. On the other side are people who live behind walls, guys, a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difference between a boundary and a wall is a boundary protects you, but you're still very connected. You're weighing what's being thrown at you and you're taking in what feels right and keeping out what doesn't. And that's what a boundary does. If you don't have a boundary, you take in everything. Somebody says you're fat, you're going to die. There's no, there's no protection from the stimulus. If you're behind a wall, you're an empty fortress. My kids used to say, talk to the hand because the face don't give a damn. You know, you're not, you're protected, but you're not listening. Mm -hmm. And so I teach both men and women to move into that middle ground uh, of, uh, of a supple, permeable, but protective uh, shield around you that doesn't enclose you so much that you're disconnected and doesn't open you up so much that you're not protected. And it's a practice. I have a boundary visualization exercise. You literally, we don't have time to do it, but you literally close your eyes and you imagine this thing around you. And then you walk around with it for several weeks. And uh, it, it really is a, a, uh, an attentional practice. Before I would go into the Family Institute of Cambridge faculty meetings, where I knew the fur was going to fly, I'd take a breath and I'd look down and I'd put this boundary around me. Then I'd walk in inside my boundary. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to have. It is. I use that myself. 
Well, one subject we didn't talk about much, you did mention it in with a couple about um, sex, about I, I never get it and he, and he uh, wants it all the time, that whole conversation. Talk about how to resolve the changing desires and, and interests in terms of sex in a relationship. Oh my gosh, we've got two minutes left. Shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> sure. have left it to the end, but my, my next book. Um, the thing is that a lot of men in particular filter all of their emotional needs through sex. Hmm. Men under patriarchy are allowed two feelings, anger and lust. Mm -hmm. That's it. Let me say that again. Under patriarchy, men are allowed anger and lust. All the vulnerable feelings are forbidden. And so men filter all those vulnerable feelings physically through sex. What they really often want is closeness or a feeling that there are uh, another story. And then we're going to have to go. Mm -hmm. True story. But this is about thinking ecologically instead of linearly. So a couple comes to me and it's a classic heterosexual thing. He wants sex all the time. She wants sex none of the time. They're killing each other. Young couple in their thirties. Hmm. I bring them in and like any good therapist, I get them off of the position level. I want it, I don't, into what it means. What does sex mean to you? What does sex mean to you? When I get to the guy, true to form, it turns out that sex means all sorts of emotional things to him that he's a good guy, that she loves him, that she thinks he's desirable, blah, blah, blah. True story. They come back two weeks later and say, we, we did the sex thing, we got it solved. I said, oh, oh, okay. He said, the next time my husband wanted sex, rather than my usual, which is to go, I went over to him, I hugged him, and I gave him a big kiss. I looked him in the eye and I said the following, I think you're really hot. I think you are so desirable. You're so sexy. You're such a good man. You have my heart. Oh, I don't want to have sex tonight. Anyway, I think that you are so great. And the man, true story, to his amazement, looked at her and said, okay. And the reason he was able to say that was because she so fed him on the other levels. I call this soft power. I teach this to women in particular loving power it's not enough to just say no you have to say i cherish you like none other and by the way no mm -hmm. and that's an that's also moving beyond patriarchy under patriarchy you can either be connected or you can be powerful but you can't be both at the same time mm -hmm. and a lot of women move from disempowerment to the same kind of empowerment that men have had for years no i want something revolutionary i want loving power I love you to pieces and no, no sex tonight. And combining those two things, the love and the strength is a whole new world order that moves beyond both patriarchy and individualism to something brand new. I love you. I'm connected to you. Get your foot off my foot, please. Thank you. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, I'm sure we could spend hours, but you do have a course coming up and I'm sure that'll be a topic in the next courses. So Terry Real, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's uh, just a joy. I'm, I'm so glad we finally met. I am too, Michael. Thank you for doing this service yeah. as well. Yeah, blessings. <laughs> blessings to you too. 
We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.